0: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It is Tuesday, April the 11th, and we have Brent crude oiled. Basically, uh, I'm calling this the week in which Brent crude oil doesn't have a heartbeat. It's it's a flat line. and basically... It's got to $85 a barrel on Brent after the big uh, shock announcement last week by OPEC plus and it's just more or less stay there plus or minus a few cents every day like it's waiting for a bus what's the next bus to come along $85 a barrel will that bus be delivered um Uh, uh, from Washington, D.C., where the IMF and the World Bank are meeting uh, uh, the outlook there, uh, or will it come from Yemen, where indeed uh, Saudi Arabia and, and its uh, the sort of counter forces within the war in Yemen, the parties to the war in Yemen seem to be hammering out a deal that might bring a new dawn there. Let's go to Omar al-Abadli, Director of Research, Bahrain Center for Strategic International <coughs> and Energy Studies. Omar, this is our first chance to have you at the table and give us your thoughts on this Saudi-Iran rapprochement and is it going to deliver its first uh, sort of prize in Yemen?
1: Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't be too optimistic. Uh, I think the, the linchpin here is China. Uh, uh, the, uh, China's ability to enforce uh, any sort of agreement. And if you look at the history of China's foreign policy, there isn't much cause for optimism there, because first of all, China's not, some, not a country that traditionally gets involved in countries beyond its neighborhood, uh, nor nor does it have a handbook or a a playbook for dealing with these issues. And secondly, the range of instruments that China has for influencing is quite restricted to the economic domain. Uh, It doesn't have any sort of security or military measures. It doesn't have uh, the diplomatic heft uh, of someone like the US. Of course, it could be that this is the start of something new and China is going to be a much more active partner. But I think that the history of China's involvement should indicate that there isn't going to be any major intrusion on its part, uh, and then as regards the Houthis and the Iranians, um, it wouldn't surprise me if something temporary emerged uh, uh, as a sort of an attempt to uh, uh, to draw the Saudi Arabians in, uh, uh, possibly to give them a false sense of security, but in the long term uh, I don't yet see the pre- the crucial preconditions for a stable uh, uh, resolution to the to the conflict because uh, because at the end of the day, there's a lot of armed people, and there's a lot of uh, 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 and there's a lot of uh, uh, conflict regarding what is uh, uh, what is fair, what is just, what is acceptable to all parties.
0: Dr. Charles Elinas, CEO of Cyprus Natural Hydrocarbons uh, Company, and Senior Fellow at the Global Energy Center at Atlantic Council. Dr. Charles, as mentioned in the introduction, the IMF World Bank uh, spring meetings are taking place in the shadow of uh, high inflation still sticking around and slow growth outlook, even though there was the World Bank did revise a slight upward uh, global forecast for 2023 from 1.7% growth uh, uh, to 2% for the global uh, uh, average econ- global economy uh, a slight uh, change but ultimately we still to be like the oil price stuck without any uh, wind between china recovery uh, uh, demand recovery and G7 Europe-US economic outlook weakness, that force seems to just be freezing any movement. Your
2: thoughts? Yes, I think the, the oil price has now stabilized around $85 and probably will stay around there for a while yet. But uh, I believe in the longer term over the year, the trend is upwards. I was just reading earlier on some news that in China, they are now, the airlines are now hiring staff because they expect uh, air travel to increase dramatically over the next few months. Uh, with air travel in China increasing, obviously oil demand will go up. And with uh, supply becoming tighter and tighter after the cuts, the voluntary cuts in production, prices will go up. Um, so I believe by the end of the year, there is a, a good chance that uh, the forecast that uh, the oil price may reach a hundred dollars will happen. So there is a fair wind in that direction.
0: You're still a subscriber to the year of two halves, uh, despite yeah. the. You know, the, the, the growing concerns about recession in the U.S. and, you know, all sorts of indicators coming that, uh, you know, Q1 earnings expected to be significantly lower uh, uh, and other indicators. You're still subscribing to the idea that second half will bring that demand growth.
2: I believe it will happen simply because China is going to grow faster than uh, some people expect. China indications from China are, are stronger and China will cut the day at the end of the day, as far as oil is concerned. The, imp- the United States isn't really going to go into serious recession. It's uh, uh, it's remaining stagnant. There may be some some, some concerns about uh, uh, mild recession, but not serious. As a result, uh, oil demand in the United States will not necessarily go down dramatically, but oil demand in China is going to increase substantially. So the on balance um, globally, we will see prices going up.
0: Let's welcome to the table uh, Jose Shalhoub, a political risk and oil analyst consultant at Venergy oh, Co- Global.
2: Uh, um, can you hear sorry? me?
0: Uh, I can hear you yes, okay.
2: Now, what I said is that um recession in the united states is 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 it going to happen or if it happens, it's going to be my and the impact on on oil consumption is going to be uh, small. Uh, While in China, uh, the recovery is on the way, the indication that they now expect a a huge increase in travel is an indication that uh, things are uh, expected to get better. And oil demand in China is going to increase at a time when these voluntary cuts will will come into effect, uh, restricting supply. So overall, if we look at the overall picture, I expect um, oil demand to, on balance, increase and prices to go up. Yes, it's going to be a a year of two halves.
0: Let's go to Venezuela. I, I get the view from Jose Chalhoub, political risk and oil analyst, consultant of Energy Global in Caracas. Jose, I mean, one of the surprising stories, although on the margins, but can make a difference in a tight market, Venezuela's March oil exports rise quite significantly as more super tankers, uh, Chevron cargoes are picking up Venezuelan oil. What's your outlook for that?
3: Yeah, thank you, Sean. Thank you very much. Uh, well, yeah, uh, according to recent data, uh, the exports have uh, uh, rise in around forty thousand barrels per day. Uh, but uh, that's considering only uh, the Chevron recent uh, license to restart production here. So I wouldn't be too you know, hopeful on any significant recovery of production considering all this recent massive case of corruption discovered here in Venezuela uh, leading to the resignation of uh, former oil minister Tarek al Uh
0: Resignation or dismissal?
3: <laughs> well formally resignation he resigned but you know there's lots of versions uh, running around here uh but uh, you know the general opinion here it's that it's about a f- clash of factions within the same government um i'm the one that reads this situation uh some sort of you know pressure from washington uh, in exchange for this, uh, recent, uh, renewal of license to Chevron, considering also that title isami allegedly has lots of links to Iran. Uh, so maybe Washington told, I mean, uh, pressured Caracas in, in exchange for more, you know, sanctions lifting to Chevron and potentially new further investments in the future to, you know, to further recover oil production here, you know, just. Dismiss, you know, get ISAMI out of the game and we'll, you know, probably get you more 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 investments in here in Venezuela. That's my that's my read of this this whole situation. But it's been massive. I mean, it's about 40 billions of dollars in, in, in stolen money <laughs> in just one case. I mean, it's it's a continuation of different cases of corruption all the all through these recent years.
0: Omar uh coming back to the decision by OPEC plus last week to uh, uh cut supply um quite significantly from May um one over one million barrels a day within yeah. the, the sort of OPEC uh, countries Iraq Saudi UAE uh, uh uh and Oman the Gulf countries um uh, and then the Russian cut that's already been in place, um, there's been some discussion as to whether that was a strategic geopolitical decision in which to, to sort of reemphasize the independence the growing independence of the geopolitical strategy of the Gulf states versus their traditional allies in the West and the U.S., or it's a simply a market outlook that, unlike Dr. Charles, OPEC Plus sees a, a, a drop off in demand, and so they're getting out ahead of it. How do you see that debate?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a regular the regular occurrence whereby uh, the perception in media circles is that this is some sort of geopolitical message that the Saudis are telling the US: "We're on our, you know, we're, we're independent." We're, but I, I don't buy any of this. OPEC decisions, as far as I can tell certainly since 2016, uh, are driven you know, 99.9% by economic considerations. Uh, and I think that there's two factors that play in here. First of all, OPEC is, less, uh, uh, is more pessimistic than uh, Charles are uh, uh, regarding the state of the economy in the second half, especially because inflation is still being stubborn. And so in perhaps the expectations of interest rate cuts, or at least of the absence of further interest rate increases, are not going to be realized. Uh, and so they're hedging on that. And secondly, I think Saudi Arabia wants to uh, create some excess capacity in its own uh, uh, production so that, you know, as we lead up to uh, more, uh, you know, a, a more sensitive political times in the U.S. electoral calendar, Saudi Arabia has the, you know, the, the weapon or, if you call it, or the tool of being able to ex- increase uh, supply quite easily if there is a spike in prices, either because of an escalation in conflict in the Middle East, escalation of conflict in Ukraine, and so on and so forth. But overall, I think it is just a, a, a garden variety economic decision by uh, uh, OPEC uh, and all the sort of uh, hair on fire geopolitical analysis is just mostly wide on the mark.
0: Charles, just sort of picking up on that. I mean, can both of these things exist, where it's a it's a market analysis, a market decision, as OPEC, uh, OPEC plus, and Saudi Arabia in particular, as the leader, has always declared in recent times, they 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 make decisions based on the mo- balancing of the market, and yet how can that be a judgment in place when? You know, you're saying and, and and echoing what the IEA has been saying for some time, that the second half of the year will bring a, a, a significant surge in demand recovery, uh, bringing the global average for tw- the year of 2023 above 2 million barrels a day. That would mean that in the second half, we'd have to see a 2.6, a 2.7 million barrel a day demand increase over 2022 in order for those numbers to be achieved. Clearly, OPEC plus doesn't see that.
2: But I think you have to uh, look at it in a slightly different way. We started the year with a price, oil price of about eight, uh, the first quarter of about $85 and forecasts that by the end of the year, it will go to 100. Then you had the banking crisis and the price collapsed. And, and, and even though it recovered, it didn't recover substantially. Saudi, as you know, has a target... Well, it's come
0: back to where it was before the banking crisis. No, oh, no, hang
2: on. It, it, it came to about $80, and it's, and it's stuck there for a, for a little while. Saudi has a target to maintain an oil price around $90. So they put in these voluntary cuts, and hey, presto, the price rose back. It came back to the levels before the banking crisis, about $85. And they announced it in a a way to, to get maximum impact. In other words, to cause a substantial increase in price by coming out unexpectedly. So OPEC, in my view, OPEC merely acted on market forces. They saw the price coming down, staying down and not bouncing back, looking into the future and getting a little bit worried about how things are going to go and acting on that basis. Nothing geopolitical about it. It's merely OPEC acting on, especially Saudi, on its own targets and trying to bring the oil, the oil price back to that level. And it has had the desired effect. So why are we, I mean, what I find funny is that analysts immediately during the banking crisis immediately pro- projected into prices, into the future, low prices, and, and 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 all sorts of things and forecasting price of oil by the end of the year much lower and suddenly now because of these cuts they changed their, their their approach so I, I think there is a a, a misreading of the situation well everybody's really changing their point. approach
0: a few weeks ago OPEC plus said they weren't going to do anything until the end of the year they obviously did a, a major announcement now whether they follow through with it, to the letter of the law, we'll have to see. But ultimately, but, there's a lot of change in counterintuitive forces moving. Uh, and, and you'd have to say for a million and a half barrel a day cut, only getting back to where you were a month ago isn't exactly a confidence boosting and uh, results, you would say.
2: But I, I believe Obic was trying to achieve just that, to come back to where they were. We're not necessarily trying to drive the price to high, very high levels. That's not the aim. They have achieved what they wanted, I believe, and they responded simply because they had to. The price went down and wasn't coming up, and was there was a danger that having stuck uh, to around, uh, around 80 or below 80, it would stay there. So they gnashed it up, and they acted the way they, in my view, the way they should be expected to act.
0: Jose, you mentioned in your earlier comment there that there is this underlying, sort of uh, quid pro quo discussions going on between Washington and Caracas, uh, the the removal of the former energy minister, the the corruption uh, investigation, do you, uh, the the sort of reengagement of Chevron. Is this a path now that's going to deliver more results for the? Uh, uh, venezuelan oil industry for venezuelan oil exports are you optimistic that uh caracas and washington can find a working relationship
3: i should be i should expect that i mean i'm 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 the one that uh ever since this whole mess you know started uh when uh, this former minister just resigned or was sacked uh, uh i mean i you know i mean just connected the dots and you know Venezuela and the US I've always insisted on this I mean they were both traditional commercial allies I mean because of the ge- geographical proximity uh, between Venezuela and the US I mean for Venezuela the only way to recover entirely it's oil production because the government the state needs fresh oil money fresh investments the only way, considering also the situation regarding Russia, the sanctions against Russia, like the sanctions against Russian oil exports, the only way for Venezuela to get fresh money is to relaunch its relationship, be more pragmatic with Washington. And I think I consider this whole situation based on the fact that that AISOMI, that the former minister, I mean, a lot, according to lots of version had, different links with iran with different arab uh, extremist groups uh, in syria and lebanon i mean i think there was i think there was a you know an exchange between washington and caracas for more investments that's that's what i believe i mean recently or also, also uh i read that the 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 Valetta refiner company was uh considering to apply for a, a new license to you know to uh, import crude from Venezuela. So, I mean, you, you see this, uh, you can connect the dots after all this thing that, that, that happened uh, regarding the, the minister, the corruption case, I mean, it's been massive. Uh, and I think that uh, maybe Maduro and his allies, I mean, his close allies were pushed by Washington to, you know, clean up this whole mess of corruption. in in exchange for more investments that's my read since the early you know the very beginning of this whole situation
0: let's go to the survey question because another sort of uh exciting confusing signal in all of this is the performance of bitcoin uh this the bitcoin has just surpassed thirty thousand dollars uh in in trading uh and um if we can bring up the survey question uh the 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 outlook for the the bitcoin uh for the first time since june and the question is why uh, bitcoin is a is a reference for risk on bulls it's generally been the indicator in the past that uh, uh, Bitcoin moving above thirty thousand is an indicator of risk-on appetite, uh, uh, and uh, so is it because the risk-on appetite the bulls are back, or is Bitcoin now a flight to safety? Indeed, with all the troubles in the dollar and the uncertainty with the with the sort of U.S. financial system, the European financial system, that actually Bitcoin is going above $30,000 because it is now a flight to safety for bears uh, on the traditional uh, financial system? Or is it simply business as usual, confusion reigns supreme, this is the moment we're in. So risk on bulls, uh, flight to safety bears, or confusion continues your thoughts on on that from a from a bitcoin point of view and where this risk on appetite may indeed be omar i wanted to get your views on the wider geopolitical situation in the region saudi iran we've got your views you've always been somewhat uh sort of a little bit questioning the sustainability of that but What about the wider region? We're seeing some significant sort of troubles emerging within the Syrian-Israeli border, Lebanon. Uh, Are these related? Is that totally isolated? We did have a sense that Saudi, the Abraham Accords, were bringing the Gulf and the Israel closer together vis-a-vis Iran. Is this now some kind of uh, sunlight between them? How do you see the whole picture of the region in the context of the Saudi-Iran rapprochement?
1: Well, uh, this is a, a timely reminder that Iran has a very sophisticated network of proxies uh, and has significant influence over those proxies and strategically uh, uh, and tactically instructs them to escalate uh, depending on its, you know, uh, its position in certain negotiations. Uh, so at the moment, there's still question marks over the I- Iranian nuclear deal. So as Saudi Arabia is, as, as Iran is courting Saudi Arabia, uh, it sends a reminder to the US and Israel that uh, it can still continue to threaten their own uh, uh, interests uh, as it seeks to get as good a possible offer from the US regarding the nuclear deal, assuming that's still on the table. Uh, and it's also, uh, uh, you know, a- a- an indication of the endemic problem we have in the region, which is uh, that, you know, uh, many countries, many states and many Groups, non-state groups, and state groups, and so on, uh, are unsatisfied with their current lot in life uh, and feel that the best way for them to improve their lot is to take things by force. Uh, And that situation hasn't changed and is going to get worse, I'm afraid, for the foreseeable future. For a while, we had the U.S. acting as a policeman, from you know, say 1990 till about 2010. Uh, but it's quite clear that the US has taken its hands off the wheel and is not interested in being a policeman. And so now it's, you know, it's looking like 19th century power politics in the Middle East, whereby everyone who thinks they can get something by force just takes it by force. And I'm afraid we won't see an improvement on that front. And in, 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 you mentioned my, you know, that I temper, you know, that I'm relatively pessimistic. I am pessimistic in particular. I don't think this situation this this uh, chronic instability in the middle east unfortunately will be resolved until there's a big war uh, uh, that's that's what i think is, is we're heading towards there's going to have to be uh, some sort of big you know head-on clear explicit conflict and you know two or three major players are going to have to be you know knocked down a few pegs and only then can we really think about something stability but until then Then it's just whatever we saw in Europe for, you know, two or three hundred years, you know, microcosmically being recreated in in the Middle East.
0: Well, Charles, I'd like you to pick up on that from a European perspective. Uh, We've just seen the uh, culmination of three days of rather robust military exercises around Taiwan. Uh, uh, immediately after a visit by Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the the EU president, uh, to China, which were sort of signaling some gap between the European position on China and the US position on China, uh, I wanted to get your views on that uh, discussion, that sort of analysis, after this visit of uh, Macron and Ursula, Ursula line to China. Is there a gap emerging between Washington and Brussels vis-a-vis China? and uh, Where does that go?
2: There certainly is. If you see Macron's uh, uh, actions in China, what he said, what he did, and then if you see what Germany uh, has been doing, uh, reluctantly following the United States, but not uh, really endorsing the United States position, there is a, a, a division growing um, between European countries and the United States. European Commission though is fully behind the United States, but the European Commission by on its own, it's not sufficient to sway the whole of Europe behind the American line. So with the French and the Germans um, taking a slightly different view and trying to maintain some kind of independence and safeguard their economic interests. There is a a division growing. There is a growing belief that uh, China is not as dangerous as is made out by the United States to be. It still is uh, way behind um, the the United States in terms of military strength or an economic strength. As a result, uh, the Europeans see uh, benefit in maintaining um, a slightly different line of approach towards China than Europe, than how, uh, the United States.
0: How do they sort of sleep at night with sort of reconciling that view with the fact that China is essentially giving Russia the cover it needs geopolitically to maintain a war in the center of Europe? How, does, how do they, they square that circle? The I,
2: believe, I, I believe ultimately Germany and France would like to see an end to the Ukraine war in the not too distant future. And perhaps they see China is uh, uh, coming in and um, offering some help in that direction. Certainly they don't believe the United States at this stage is interested in bringing the war to, to an end. Um, and the war, uh, as things are at the moment, is... Just carry on, um, unbelievably carrying on. uh, There there is unease within Europe uh, about the impact of the war. It's having a huge impact. Europe is becoming deindustrialized as a result of of the impact of the war on energy, on on costs. And um, and there is also a concern that Europe is turning into a, a United States satellite. If they're not careful, if Europe is not careful to take a position and exert itself, Um, it it will find itself as a satellite to the United States and that's not um, a vision that uh, Germany and France share. Or uh, well, perhaps they should
0: start spending their 2% of GDP on, <laughs> on defense if they want that independent view of the world. Uh, it seems a little bit, uh, I don't know how that gets balanced out. But let's get the survey result and go to South America for the South American view. Uh, so the view of this room, and we'll post on social, is that interesting that there's a certain number of subscribers to seeing Bitcoin as a flight to safety that was my vote personally I'm starting to see Bitcoin uh, as a flight to safety uh, away from the dollar and the the financial system of Wall Street uh, and uh, perhaps uh, but let's see what social media we post out there uh, Jose I wanted to get your views on where is South America vis-a-vis this point of aligning with China or not? Uh, we saw, we will see uh, the, the President Lula, Lula go to um, uh, Brazil or go to China today, of course, the biggest um, uh, economy and country in um in uh, South America and Latin America. uh, And uh, we saw uh, last week or the week before Honduras uh, sort of take a strong stand along with China against rejecting um, uh, Taiwan. Uh, Where does Lula go in his visit to to China vis-a-vis separating a viewpoint on China versus uh, Washington?
3: Yeah, sure. You, well, you have to consider also the recent news about uh, Brazil and China starting you know, first steps in, uh, in doing exchange in, in Chinese Yuan, uh, with the renminbi. So yeah, it, it, it's pretty much interesting, but uh, for me, it's a very different uh, kind of influence that China and Russia in this case have in South America. Uh, Unlike the one that it had during the former period when Chavez was alive, for example, when you had the first terms of Lula, considering all the macroeconomic situation and condition of the region. I mean, it's not pretty much the same situation as before. I mean, you have uh, different turbulent times in terms of price of commodities uh you have i mean uh, there is not a clear political landscape as well in not in south america recently we saw news about exxon uh, dumping uh, some projects in brazil uh because of the inability we have guyana guyana is the, the, the new kid on the block uh, also in terms of oil production you have the case of colombia <clears throat> and gustavo petro still finding huge opposition in terms of oil projects and if and, his very known uh, stance against uh, new oil projects, so it, it's going to be a new uh, kind of not so easy uh, Chinese and Russian influence in in the region. Uh, Lula still has some important problems to solve here and 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 in Brazil as well. So it's going to be a new and different uh, stage for for uh, for. I mean, it's not going to be easy for China and Russia to. Uh, easily penetrate the region as they did before
0: interesting uh well some very big geopolitics at play no doubt across the world but at the moment the oil market is yawning at all of that and not really too concerned um with Brent uh, trading up this morning in asia nearly 1% but still not quite getting across the $85 level on Brent it seems to be a a bit of a ceiling at the moment at least until we get some new direction but bitcoin however seems to have found its direction uh, and it's had a steady climb over the last month or more above uh, from low $20,000 to above 30 now Uh, Interesting to understand the why of that. Is it optimistic outlook or is it concern? Uh, What is feeding the oxygen of Bitcoin? Uh, Thank you so much. As always, great to have Dr. Charles Alinas, Omar El-Badley and Jose Shalhoub. Thank you for your insights and commentary this morning on the direction of travel for the energy markets. Uh, We will uh, wait to see how the week plays out. We're here every morning, 10.30 UAE time. All the best. Thank you.